Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1,676. Today we're in a facility that houses probably some of the most beautiful automobiles in the world. We're going to have some fun. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm in Oxnard, California, with a very special guest by the name of Rick Eberst. Hey, Rick, welcome to Cars Yeah. Are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I am. I've got my three-point harness on. All right. Well, I hope we don't need that. I'll try to keep it between the guardrails. We'll be safe and sound today because we're going to be talking about some very, very, very special automobiles. But before I give you a proper introduction, share one little thing with us today, Rick, that most people don't know about you. Well, uh, I would say as a retired college professor, most people don't know that I'm a college professor. They just think I'm a docent at the museum. In an earlier life, one of the things I'm known for that most people don't know is I was one of the first people in the United States to teach a course in death and dying. And uh, the first course when I was just a doctoral student at the uh, University of Maryland. And then later I had my own call-in radio talk show that was called Dr. Sex because I'm also a certified sex educator. Wow. Yeah, and actually, uh, I got an offer to go in. I was in Long Island. I got an offer to go in and teach uh, or do this uh, program at WYNY in New York. And you know, radio didn't pay anything at the time. I don't know if it still does or not. But uh, I decided not to. But I had a friend, a little Jewish lady that was about four foot tall that lived in New York City close to that studio. So I recommended her. And she went in and started uh, doing this kind of Dr. Sex talk show, and you might recognize her name as Dr. Ruth Westman. I was just going to say, Dr. Ruth, are you kidding me? Oh, my gosh. No. Everybody knows who she is. So you were the original Dr. Sex, and then she took over. That is hilarious. Wow. Small world. I just had a little radio talk show in Long Island, but uh, WNYNY was trying to get, uh, you know, expand and get out to more college students, and uh, they thought the topic of sexuality would, uh, would hook them. You know, and, and Dr. Ruth uh, was looking for a job at the time. Yeah. And she was uh, at Brooklyn College, but it turned out she needed a job and they had it. And she's uh, really made it something great for herself. Well, that is very cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. I love that question because it brings out some very, very interesting answers. Very cool. Now, everybody going to the Mullen Museum would say, where's... Dr. Sex, I'd like him to take me on a tour today. <laughs> so we'll see. Well, let me give you a proper introduction. Rick Eberst's love for cars began with drag racing when he was a junior in high school. In eighth grade, he bought a 1953 Chrysler Firedome V8 and rebuilt it in a friend's family's barn. Since then, Rick has bought and restored over 45 classic cars, most recently a 66 Corvette Big Block Coupe. Rick was a pre-med major in college and holds an MA in Physiology and Health Science, a PhD in Public Health, and a postdoc from Johns Hopkins University, that place. He has served as a professor 
chair, and dean at several universities and even as a provost at a medical school. Most recently, however, he works as a docent, as he mentioned, at the Mullen Automotive Museum, where during the pandemic, he's helped develop an educational online series called Under the Hood, allowing friends of the Mullen to take a deep dive into some of the collection's rarest and most exquisite cars. And they have some very exquisite cars at that museum. We'll be back in just a minute to talk more with Rick about his life. But first, a word from our valued sponsors that make this show possible. So give them a listen, give them a little love, and give them a little business. We will be right back. Did you know that Covercraft is much more than car covers? They offer protection for the inside of your vehicles as well. No matter what kind of vehicle you drive, Covercraft makes a floor mat, a cargo area protection product just for your vehicle. Their plush custom fit floor mats turn any ride into something special. Their premier Berber custom floor mats, which are a favorite of mine, if you want something very stylish and unique for your favorite ride, they also have weather shield Floor liners that provide ultimate protection for heavy dirt, mud, snow, and slush. Their Carhartt custom cargo liners not only look great, but keep your rear cargo area and seats protected from the kids, the pets, or whatever's going on back there. Do you have a pet that destroys your vehicles? Covercraft has you covered for that too with a wide variety of pet protection options. Is your vehicle getting a little long in tooth? There's no better way to give it a new car look than with a custom fit floor and trunk mat. I replace mine every few years with something a little different just for fun. All your options are easy to clean, they secure to the floor, and they look oh so good. Don't forget your trunk too. Custom fit trunk liners for sedans, coupes, and SUVs are perfect to protect the factory carpet from all those things that can stain, tear, and damage your carpets. Check out Covercraft.com for the huge number of styles, colors, and options that you'll love. And I've got a deal for you here at Cars Yeah. If you use the Yeah 120 code at Covercraft.com, you'll get 10% off your Covercraft order on me. Go to Covercraft.com, use the code Y-E-A-H-120 at checkout and get 10% off today. Covercraft, they've got you covered. I found a new way to protect my vehicle. American Collectors Insurance. That's who now protects my Porsche Turbo, the one I call my orange crush. But did you know they also insure your valuable collectibles of automobilia and automotive collectibles? If you're like me, you've invested in a lot of cool automotive collectibles over the years. Those items are valuable. And if you were to lose them in a theft or a fire, well, try to get your normal homeowner's insurance to pay you what they're worth. Good luck with that. American Collectors Insurance provides you with assurance and confidence that your collectibles are fully covered. American Collectors Insurance have been protecting us automotive enthusiasts since 1976. They provided me with an agreed value insurance policy backed by a history of taking care of their clients. Give them a call today for a quote at 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. And protect the ones you love. I did. American Collectors Insurance, classic car and collectible insurance designed by collectors for collectors, just like you and me. All right, Rick, we're back. And I want to start your journey here with a success quote or a mantra, some kind of saying that has meaning for you. It's a nice way to get the inspirational tires spinning a little bit here on Cars Yeah, so grab the wheel. Well, uh, I have a lot of things I'm interested in, and one of them uh, has always been Big Bang physics and kind of how the Earth and universe all came about. So I guess Einstein is someone that uh, really affected me. I've read a lot of his stuff, 
and um, really appreciated it along with Niels Bohr and, and some other folks. But one of the things that uh, Einstein said that really has affected me said, uh, was, quote, said, the search for truth is more precious than its possession. And I guess as a college professor, seeking truth and information and knowledge. And to me, it's kind of related to my sailing. I, I love to sail. So sailing is not getting from point A to point P just for the heck of it, but it's enjoying the process of going from point A to point B. And it may take you way off course to get to where you're going. But the process to me is very important. And I think the process about learning or the process of working on a car, I mean, usually we finish restoring a car. So, okay, well, what's next now? You know, so that's kind of, relates to me. So I feel that's kind of important. It's kind of a, a mantra, I guess, that you could uh, think about. Well, it's very important, especially if you're a professor and you're teaching people. My friends who are doctors have all said that, you know, their life is all about continual learning. They never stop attending school. It really, for most of us, we should live our lives that way. We, we shouldn't just finish and move on to the next thing uh, and think about these are just tasks. We should think about them as learning processes. And it's a great segue into this magnificent museum, the Mullen Automotive Museum. Peter Mullen, who, of course, is the, the reason that museum exists, has accumulated the most magnificent collection of the most beautiful pieces of work, of art, I call them, than cars. Mm -hmm. They're, they're jewel-like. And he shares them with the world in this magnificent museum. And for you listeners who've never been there, you have to take a trip to the Mullen Automotive Museum. It's absolutely over the top. What you'll see there, you won't even believe. Take young people with you. They won't even believe there were cars like this in existence. So let's talk about why you've chosen to do this. You obviously love cars. So you took, uh, in retirement, you, you've I don't think people like you ever really retire because sitting on a park, park bench or a porch is not in your, your DNA. So tell us more about the Mullen Automotive Museum. And, and mostly, let's start with this big question, the COVID, which has shut everything down. I mentioned in your uh, introduction, there's some things you guys have done to work around this pandemic. First and foremost, have you, your family and friends been okay, healthy? Oh, yeah, we've been really healthy. I've had no problems. And of course, I'm 76, and my wife's a lot younger than I am, disaster. <laughs> okay. And we've been really, really careful. And, you know, I'm a public health guy, you know. so yeah, You get it. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, I serve on the board of uh, the, our local Make-A-Wish chapter here. So we, you know, try to grant the wishes of kids with life-threatening illnesses. And I'm also on the uh, Civic Corinthian Youth Foundation. We, we teach sailing to disadvantaged kids in the summer and try to get them on the water and learn nice. skills and stuff. And enhance their learning. And so, you know, all those things are, you know, really up close and personal with people. And it's really put a major uh, hit upon us. And the Mullen Museum is the same thing. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a personal journey we like to take people on when they come to the museum. And we like to keep them in smaller groups, uh, you know, so, you know, you don't have to take a tour with a docent when you come. But I think the docents are really spectacular and they really enhance the museum and tell you the stories behind the car. If you talk to people like Jay Leno, it's, it's the story about the car that's often more important and, you know, what the dwell angle is on, on the distributor. So, that's what we like to do. And when we can't, can't have them there, you know, it's been a kind of a difficult challenge, not only for the people who want to come, but it's been a diff difficult challenge for the docents because they love this place and they can't really come there. So that's why we've been trying to do some of these YouTube and Instagram things to kind of get people more interested and keep their interest up in the, in the museum and also to keep our docents engaged so that they feel like they're, 
they're doing something. So if you ask me just in general, um, I discovered the Mall Museum when I moved from Arizona to back here to California. And I'm an art guy and I served on a lot of you know, boards museums. And so I love art. And of course, you know, I love cars. Mm-hmm. So I fucking, uh, I got here and said, what are all the museums that are around here in the, the you know, Ventura County area? And I ran across the Mullen Automotive Museum and I went to their website and my God, this is an art museum and it also has cars. So this is exactly, you know, up my alley. So uh, shortly after moving here, I, I took my Corvette and drove over there. And uh, I walked in the front door, and it was a Tuesday, I think, and and uh, the woman who was the, uh, Ruby Talbot, who was the then COO, said, well, welcome to the Mullen Automotive Museum. You must be here with the Sports Car Club of Southern California. And said, no, 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 I'm just a guy coming in, let's see the museum. Oh, no, we're closed today. This is just for private tours for this club. And I said, all right, I guess I got to leave. So I, I walked out, and then Andrew Riley, who was the uh, founding curator of the museum, saw my Corvette. He came out and said, hey, a nice car. Would you show me your Corvette? So I went, well, sure. You know? And so I showed him the Corvette. And he says, hey, you know, I'm not really doing anything right now. Why don't you come in, and I'll take you on a private tour of the Mullen Museum. Bingo! <laughs> Four and a half hours later, <laughs> I was fully hooked. And then uh, about... Probably two weeks later, I went to a, took a vet to a car show, and the Mullen was just opening up, and they had taken some of their finer Wassons and Bugattis over to the same car show, and I walked in, and I saw, you know, these cars again. I said, oh, yeah, that, that's a beautiful, that's that 1939, and that's, a, you know, that's that Hispano Suiza, and that's the Bugatti. And uh, Randy Leffenwell was one of the docents there. I don't know if you know Randy or ever interviewed him. but Oh, yes. He's been a guest on the show, yeah. Yeah, well, he was there, and I uh, started talking to him, and he said, my God, you've got 45 cars. You're a college professor. You get paid to profess, and, uh, you know, we are looking for docents. So he took me over and introduced me to that Ruby Tablet person again. And so uh, four days later, I'm having lunch with Mullen, with Mr. Mullen and four other docents and uh, at the Mullen Museum. And believe me, I did not know the difference between a Delage and a Delahaye. I didn't even know what they were, actually. And I said, oh, my God, this is like another PhD oral defense. So they're going to ask me about that car over there. And <laughs> they just uh, chatted and it was very nice. And it says, OK, here's your badge. You're now a docent. Yeah. <laughs> and the next day I was doing a tour, you know, and I said, wow, just an interesting story. When I was first there, standing in front, I, I developed a big binder that I wanted to study in every car in the museum. And uh, somebody walked in and I said, welcome to the Mullen Automotive Museum. Uh, anything particular you want to see? And they said, I want to see that Tabalago. And I said, Tabalago, what the heck is it? <laughs> Let me look up chapter five <laughs> in my binder. <laughs> yeah. And I just kind of waved my arm. I said, it's right there. And it turned out it was the first car as you walk in on a display case. And, and it's a teardrop car. It's a gorgeous car, you know. And of course, uh, I've done several things with it in the past uh, since then. But that just shows you I didn't really know anything, but I learned and worked at it and studied. And, and uh, now I'm a person who actually trains new docents and check them out before they actually let them loose in the public. So that message of, you know, keep learning and, you know, you'll keep moving. It sounds like you're the kind of guy that 
retirement is not in the game plan. You've got to keep active. You've got to keep doing things. And to combine your passion for teaching, for cars, for art, you found the holy grail, my friend, of places to be and to help expand this fascination with these beautiful, beautiful cars that they have there. Uh, the website is fantastic. And again, I encourage all you listeners to check it out. I'll put a link to it on Rick's show notes page. You know, Rick, I always like to ask my guests about a big challenge they face in their life. Now, you're a guy who's been around for a while. You know, you're no spring chicken, but you sure act like one. (laughs) I mean that in all kindness. Uh, But let's have you talk a little bit about a great challenge in your life. And the reason I ask the question is more about what was that lesson learned so that you could take that challenge forward and do something positive with it. So take us on a little drive in that Taubo Lago, that teardrop. Well, I didn't know what it was when I studied, when I came up with this challenge, but uh, all through pre-K through uh, 12, I just thought I was a stupid guy. You know, I just didn't, I wasn't a great student. I didn't do well. And it wasn't until later that I found out that I had a very severe issue called dyslexia, Mm -hmm. which is a reading problem. And my brain doesn't process a word. Uh, you know, you talk to a lot of my friends, they, they get a picture of a word in their brain. I just see a bunch of uh, scrambled letters around. So I superimpose things like calling you today on your phone number. Uh, I had to be really, really careful and check the number three times because those are the things I had the hardest time with is, is numbers that get reversed. And it wasn't actually, well, until I was working on my PhD at the University of Maryland that I really sat down and read my first book. And uh, you'll get a kick out of this. It was called Everything You Want to Know About Sex But We're Afraid to Have. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> I was taking a, a graduate course in human sexuality education, and we were supposed to read this book, which was a you know kind of a trade book, and go through and identify everything that was a misconception and wrong. Okay, and if you saw my copy, which I still have, it's got more red ink in it because I said, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean I had some good information in, but I just said there's a lot of things that weren't right. And then later, when I was working at Adelphi University as a faculty member, uh, I was chair of something called the Graduate Academic Affairs Committee, and I was reading something in front of this committee. And afterwards, the chair of the English or the uh, education department came over, and she was a reading specialist. And she said, "Did anyone?" Well, she first asked me, "What's the first book you ever read?" And I told her, "And well, how often do you read books for pleasure?" And I said, "Read books for pleasure? Who does that?" Mm-hmm. So. She said, well, you know, look, come on in. So I went over and she tested me. She says, well, gosh, you got one of the severest forms of dyslexia that I've seen. And she came up with a prescription for me. And I still do it every day. I do crossword puzzles and play word games and, and do all kinds of puzzle kinds of things to kind of keep things straight. And I've learned to deal with it. And I used, as they say, you know, I used to work in physical therapy, people that lost an arm or a leg or an eye, they learned to use their other senses and other resources. So I would, my message here, no matter what your problem or challenge might be, I always try to say, you know, you turn lemons in the lemon meringue pie, and that's my favorite pie. But you, you're trying to find out what it is that you can do and deal with those challenges and adapt to them in whatever way you have to. Yeah. And so wow. that's my message. Well, it's a wonderful story, and I want to thank you for sharing this. I have had a, what I kind of 
see is a pretty large number of guests on the show who have said this exact same thing. They've had dyslexia. They have to deal with it. Many of them are artisans. They're painters. They're drawers. They're sculptors. They're people that restore and manufacture and fabricate old cars. That seemed to be a better pathway for them. The fact that you became what you became with that challenge is absolutely mind-bending to me. And I'll tell you a a personal story that ties with this. Uh, My father... I lost him about almost four years ago. He was 84. And a few years before he passed, he was ill. And we were just talking about life and so forth. And I mentioned something about a book that he should read. And he said, well, Mark, have you ever seen me read a book? And I thought he was just, my dad was kind of a joker. And I said, yeah, right. Anyway, he goes, no, seriously, have you ever seen me read a book? And I thought about it and I went, no, no. And he said, because I can't. And I, I, again, I thought he was joking or pulling my leg. And he told me about having dyslexia. And he said that back when he was a kid, they didn't understand or know what it was. So he goes, I was just told that I was stupid. My teachers told me, my mm. parents told me, my friends told me. And I just was convinced I wasn't smart. And I had no idea. Mm. And he said, it wasn't until my grandmother kind of perceived something was going on and she got me some help very quietly on the side because back then it was just looked at as something not good and she helped me and he ended up going to college he became he studied engineering of all things imagine dealing with numbers and then he became an architect but I never knew that and so I asked him I said dad why are you telling me this right now and he said because my whole life I've been taught to be embarrassed by it and Mm -hmm. so I don't talk about it and What's interesting to me is you've shared it today. I've had so many guests share it with me, and they found what you said, ways to work around it, work with it, and so forth. So I I really commend you. The fact that you overcame what you did and became what you became, and even better, you taught people wonderful things on how to learn and grow and be a better human being. My hat is off to you, Rick, uh, for so many ways. But I think it's a wonderful, wonderful story, and hopefully we'll shed some light or some people out there listening who are struggling with this, or any kind of thing in their life, that these things can be overdone, overcome, overdone too, but they can be overcome, and you can move forward in a positive way. So thank you for sharing that. Well, uh, one of the things I studied was, I found out later, was something called multiple intelligences. And you know we tend to measure one level of intelligence, but there's many, many different levels of types of intelligence, mm-hmm. like you mentioned earlier might be very good with their hands, they might be very visual, they might be artistic, but they might not be what you would call a classic uh, student kind of thing that can stand up and rattle off something. Like I did a postdoc actually on a sabbatical. I, I went back to the University of Maryland and did a sabbatical year down there. And the guy I was working with was just given the highest honor in our discipline of anyone. And he had to write the Scholar of the Year Award. And he asked me to help him with it. And as we were working on it, he said, would you go over to my bookcase to the third shelf on the left, on that fourth bookshelf, go in about four inches, look for the American Journal of Public Health, pull out issue volumes, extern, blah, 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 and said what it was, open it up and turn to page 1,422. (laughs) There's a quote that I went right there in that third paragraph. And I said, how do you do that? You know, (laughs) how do you can't? Yeah. Great, but I can't remember any of my students' names. Well, <laughs> you know, you're right, Rick. My my father had me tricked when I was a little kid that he could see inside walls. And his mm-hmm. talent with which led to him becoming an architect was he could see things 
in three dimension, meaning he could mm-hmm. look at something and tell you how it was all put together. And mm-hmm. when I was a little kid, he used to sit like we'd go to a restaurant and he'd say, see the corner of that wall and he'd do a sketch on the napkin. That's what's inside. Mm-hmm. And I was convinced mm-hmm. probably until I was eight or nine years old that my dad had x-ray vision. And that he could see inside of wall. I really thought he could. I was like, I don't know how you do this. but And then, of course, later I discovered, well, that's architecture and engineering. He knows how things are built, so he can figure it out. And he helped me in my life learn how to see things differently. And to this day, it's a bit of a, almost a frustration for me because I can't go anywhere without stopping and analyzing everything because that's what he taught me. Why do they do that? Mm -hmm. That's so bad the way they put that together. They should have just moved that up there and it would have been so much nicer and blah, 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 you know? And so, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a, a good thing he taught me, but sometimes it, it makes me stop and focus too much on the details and not the bigger picture, the 30,000 foot view. So again, we all have our own talents. We all have the ways that we cope with things in life and that we improve things. And yeah, uh, it's like people that can build magnificent, these works of art at the Molly Museum. Those were all handcrafted Mm -hmm. by artisans that could see what they were going to do before they pounded those flat sheets of metal. And it's just Mm -hmm. mind boggling that the mind, it's just like Leonardo da Vinci or some of these sculptures that could look at a block of stone and create works of art that we could not even imagine. And they could see it before it was done. So we all have our own talents, that's for sure. Well, we're going to take a short break and we're going to dive deeper into your passion for cars because you are a diehard car guy. So give our uh, sponsors a little love here. We'll be right back to talk about cars with Rick Eberst. Hang on. Let's step away from the conversation and talk about our charity of choice here at Cars Yeah, America's Automotive Trust. America's Automotive Trust is a group of like-minded nonprofits that are working together to preserve and promote car culture across the country. Together, they provide scholarships and grants to aspiring technicians and restoration artists. They provide youth education programs and bring communities together through auto-related events, car shows, and drives. Among these nonprofits is TechForce Foundation, a great organization dedicated to solving the technician shortage that threatens the transportation industry today. By providing career development resources and increasing awareness and enthusiasm for the tech profession, TechForce is bringing bright young students into the auto, diesel, aviation, marine, motorcycle, motorsports, and restoration worlds. To date, they've awarded more than $10 million in scholarships and grants to tech students. And in times like these, I don't have to tell you how essential those techs are, keeping our delivery and emergency vehicles running and keeping America rolling. To learn more about TechForce or to make a donation to this cause, visit www.techforce.org. You'll be glad you did. My favorite collector car magazine is Keith Martin's Sports Car Market. I've been a subscriber for decades. Sports Car Market is the Wall Street Journal for enthusiasts and collectors. It's your monthly must-read. Whether you dream of owning a collector car, maybe you have two, or maybe you've got 200. Sports Car Market has been around for 31 years, and it's filled with valuable articles, intelligent write-ups, and the latest auction sales. Go to sportscarmarket.com and subscribe today. Here's a couple deals I have for you just for listening here on Cars Yeah. If you use the checkout code Cars Yeah, you'll receive a 50% discount on your digital subscription at Sports Car Market. That's an exclusive offer from Cars Yeah. And guess what? Here's another deal. If you'd like to get the actual magazine, use the code BSH 
for buy, sell, hold. That's code BSH. And you'll get $10 off your annual print subscription. That's right. $10 off. Both of these are exclusive offers here at Cars Yow for Sports Car Market Magazine. Just go to sportscarmarket.com and get your deals today. So what do you do after running a race team for 27 years with over 100 podiums, multiple Daytona wins, and a win at Le Mans? Well, if you're racer and the Racers Group team owner, Kevin Buckler, you start Adobe Road Winery. It's located in Petaluma, California, and he and his team have created a winning combination with the Racing Series, four ultra-premium red wine blends that are in a class of their own. Like racing, these wines comprise of art, precision, engineering, science, wrapped in a whole lot of fun. You can choose from four blends titled Redline, Apex, Shift, and the 24. Today, I'm going to talk about Shift. This wine was awarded 93 points by Robert Parker's Wine Advocate. It's balanced and spicy with dark blueberries and a cigar aroma. The unique bottle shape features a vintage-inspired metal gated shift back with carbon fiber, and the cork is topped with a five-speed shift knob. That's right. There's going to be some battles at the dinner table on who gets to keep the cork after this bottle has been enjoyed. The Racing Series is a delicious gift for the automotive enthusiast in your life, and I've got a deal for you. If you use the code CARSYEAH, all one word in caps, at checkout, you get $10 off any purchase of the wines from the Racing Series. Your wine ships promptly and arrives quickly right at your door. Use the code CARSYA at checkout and get $10 off your purchase from the Racing Series today. There's always a seat at the table for excellence with the Racing Series. Go to adoberoadwines.com and use the code CARSYA today. Cheers! We are back, Rick, and I'd love for you to share a story that instigated your personal passion for cars, that pivotal moment in your life as you remember it when you knew that you were going to be a car guy. Well, I guess the uh, first time I went to Indianapolis Motor Speedway because I grew up in Indiana and went there 14 years in a row. But the thing that really got me the most is my brother, I have an older, had a, I have an older brother, and he had bought a 56 Chevrolet, had a 265 in it, and he decided to get it kind of hopped up, you know, three deuces and a floor shift and, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, he was working with a guy who was a friend of his, who was his age, who was in drag racing. And he had the guy in drag racing that had a 40 Ford that had a, 280, a 283 Corvette engine in it and uh, four deuces, actually, and it's before fuel injection. And uh, he got me, introduced me to him, and, and uh, I went down there one day with my brother, and they were just they just put this Corvette engine back together. So they got it inside the 40 Willys, and they're getting ready to fire it up. Now, this thing's got straight headers coming, you know, individual pipes coming right out under the front fender wells, okay? They're straight out the side. And uh, had to have a collector box on it. It just had a little piece of sheet metal around the four <laughs> exhaust ports. And I'm standing right in front of the thing of the radiator and guys are on either side and they decide, okay, we're going to fire this thing up and they fire up that engine. And it's just a little small block Corvette, okay, engine, but it roared and screamed and you got gas fumes coming up in my face and the exhaust coming out the side and flames coming out of the side. Of, and I said, oh my God, this is unbelievable. You know, and the fact that you could drive this thing and actually drive it up down the strip and, and not kill yourself, <laughs> which <laughs> I did many times in that car. But 
that was kind of to me was the thing that hooked me. But yet I here I am. I'm a science student. I'm good in biology. I wasn't good in much else, but I was good in biology because the biology teacher always read right out of the book. And if you stayed on the right hand page, when he's the left hand page, you just kind of look and see what the diagram said or whatever, and I could kind of come up with an answer. And I'd always put up my hand. So I got an A plus in. Uh, in biology, and because of that, I got a chance to go down to Indiana University and use the electron microscope that kind of got me interested in health and science, and that's kind of started my career. But the 40 Ford firing up with that engine in it and the noise and the energy and the shaking and the power and the fact that these guys were doing this in the back garage of their house, this is not, you know, Zor Dundoff up in, you know, <laughs> in right, it's a bunch of guys, although we did have we had a Dundalk cam in it, but uh, anyway, that's kind of got me started. So that's where it was all about. So I was hooked after that. Well, I mentioned in your intro that you've restored 45 cars here. What was the first car in your life that had great meaning for you? Well, I, you were talking earlier about your your daughter learned, driving on a three-speed, and, and uh, uh, I learned to drive on a, a 58 Opal that had three in the tree. And uh, my dad was really good. He took me out in the middle of winter, went out to the park, and he says, okay, drive there, get about going 40, slam on the brakes and see what happens, you know, <laughs> see what you can do to correct. So I, so I learned to drive on a stick. But in the seventh grade, let's see, no, in the eighth grade, I met a good friend of mine. His name was Hal Canode, and Hal still builds Canode chassis. He's still in drag racing. He mm. builds double A fuel dragsters. He builds a lot of those crackler cars, you know, that people oh, yeah. like to have the yeah. slingshots. So he still builds those. He's still in the business. And he said, uh, you know, we got interested. And he, he was also helping out with this 40 Ford. So we said, well, let's get an engine of our own. So that's when we went out and bought that Firedome V8 Chrysler. We paid $75 for it out of a junkyard. And believe this, 1958, 75 bucks was a lot of money when you're a paperboard. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So he had a farm. He lived on a farm outside of town. So he, we went out to his barn, tore the thing apart, went out, bought parts and put it all together. And uh, said, OK, well, now we need a car for this thing. So he came into school one day when we were in the ninth grade. And he said, you know, I was driving by this old farmer's back 40 is what we used to call it out in Indiana. Bam, bam, the out back 40 out there, there's an old coupe out there. It looks like a 40 Ford. So could your brother drive, because we didn't have a driver's license, cause could your brother drive us out there after school so we could look at it? So we went out to look at it, and there was this coupe, trees growing out of it, uh, chickens living in it, uh, no engine, no front axle, and it turned out to be a 40 Willys. Ooh. So we said, oh, that's great. A Willys, you know, that was even better because one of the problems with the 44 is had heavier steel. And we kept being beat by this guy from uh, Ohio named George Montgomery. We called him Dirty George because he cheated. <laughs> but he was just cheating better than we were cheating. <laughs> but we we uh, went up and asked the guy that, you know, that owned the farm. He says, uh, and of course, my, my friend's a you know, farm guy and he's very low key. He says, what's the story there on that there coop out there in the back trap 40, you know? And he says, oh, yeah, it belonged to my brother. No engine in it. It blew up and it's been out there for quite a while. I said, well, is that for sale? And he said, uh, yeah, I'll sell it to you for the same thing. I got a guy come by four or five months ago, and he wanted to buy it. I sold it to him, but all he took was the front axle off of it. People made trailers out of the front axle. And said, well, okay, you know, uh, what did he pay for it? Just $5. <laughs> and so we get $2.50 each for this 40 Willys. And uh, 
Then we put the Chrysler engine in and a couple orange crates and, uh, you know, no seat belts, no lights, no, no, just drove it during the day. Drove it, you know, circled around the high school and around the little local Custer's Last Stand, which was the place that, uh, you know, all the hangout, the car hops and stuff, and sure. roller blades. Roll- yeah. <laughs> and anyway, uh, when we, we were uh, paying attention, we kept being beat by George Montgomery at a 33 Willys. And I kind of did a little research, and I found out the Willys were not as heavy, you know, as the 40 Ford. And we were giving up two or 300 pounds just on the thickness of the steel. So my friend Hal and I said to the guy that owned the uh, the uh, 40 Ford, said, why don't we put your drivetrain on our Willys, and we'll go out and beat George Montgomery. So we uh, switched, made that switch. I painted that car candy apple red with gold underlay on it. And uh, we eventually got a fiberglass front end for it. But we went out and beat, you know, George. And we were ET national championships on and off for many, many years. Wow. And uh, in 1966, I had uh, decided I'd made enough money that I could. Uh, so I sold my third of Willys. And believe it or not, I got $6,000 for my third of that Whoa, car. Oh, nice investment. <laughs> yeah. And I, I went to college, and that paid. I had a basketball. I played basketball, and I was on swing team, and, you know, all that Letterman stuff. And I got a little basketball scholarship to a small school in Missouri called Park College, now Park University. And along with that six grand, I paid my way through school. And it uh, turned out my roommate, my first year there, was uh, I was 21, and he was 21. We were born the same day, but he came from a different financial background. He had a brand-new 66 Corvette Big Block. It was his car. So uh, that kind of got me interested in Corvettes. But uh, anyway, that, that was the first car that really started it all. And uh, actually, that car was turned into a double-A gasser, double-A gasser, and eventually the third party that owned that car with us, uh, Nelson Stoltz was his name, he had bought that car back and restored it as kind of a show car. And uh, I was out visiting my dad's grave back in Marion, Indiana, and I, I saw this little signs I left the cemetery, it says, you know, VFW car show, and now i got to go to that car show. And so I'm looking at the cars, and back in the back is this candy apple red Willys, and, uh, you know, double A set up as a double A Chrysler, bone Chrysler engine in it. And I said, boy, that looks like my willies, you know, our willies that we had. So I climbed underneath the front of it and I said, well, there's that 38 Plymouth front axle that we found at the junkyard that bolted right no on. No kidding. You found the car. Wow. And we got in big trouble because the trunk had rusted out in the car. And we took a torch to my friend Hal's, uh, uh, one of the galvanized uh, watering troughs and cut a big section out of it. We put in the back, figuring it'd be a lot of weight and cover up the back and support the batteries. I turned around, looked in the back, and there was that still piece of uh, galvanized steel in the trunk. The one had ever fixed it. And I'm laying underneath the car. This guy starts kicking me in the foot. And it turned out to be the owner, Nelson Stoltz. Wow. And uh, so... We were reminiscing, and he said, you know, you always drove this car better than anyone else. He said, I live out in the farmland. Why don't you come out? We'll, we'll take that car off the trailer, and we'll run it up in front of my house. You can light up the tires. So I took it out and drove it. So not many people can say that when they were probably, I must have been 62 then, that I was, uh, you know, drove the very first car that I ever owned. No, you know? no. Yeah, not, and nobody can say that. <laughs> What a story. That's incredible. Very cool. Well, I'm going to get in your head a little bit here, Rick. If you woke up tomorrow and you were actually manifest as a car, what would you be? 
Oh, well, there's no question in my mind. I thought about this a little bit when you gave me some information. And, you know, I'm a member of the American Bugatti Club. Uh, I joined when you didn't, we can't, had a new category for me called enthusiast. So you didn't have to own a Bugatti <laughs> to be a member. <laughs> uh-huh. So uh, I love, and I've driven, you know, Mr. Mullen has 52 Bugattis. And so wow. I've probably driven three quarters of them, including the Atlantique, if you don't know. You know that car, oh, the Atlantique? yeah, everybody knows that car, yeah. Well, I had it and showed it when it was best of the best up at the Quail and uh, driven driven right around the streets of Oxnard in that car. Wow. Anyway, I think I would love to be a Bugatti Centodici. You know the Centodici? I don't know. Which one? Centodici. What is that? Okay, Centodici in Italian means 110. Cento Dici. Okay. Okay. And the 110th celebration of the founding of Bugatti was in 2019. It was formed in 1909. So that's 110 years. Uh, and you might know there's the EB 110 that came about on the yes, Tory Bugatti's. Yes. 110. So they came out with these 10 special cars just to celebrate the 110th anniversary of the founding of Bugatti. And they called the Cento Dici. Okay. Yes. And to me, the, this reflects everything I'm, I could ever think about. It's powerful. It's wonderfully built. You can go like the Dickens that will do over 270, 300 miles an hour. And you can drive it like that during the day and take it to the opera at night. And I'm an art guy, music guy. You know, uh, Diane's daughter is a coloratura opera singer. So we love opera and music and art. So that would be that car. So it's also was based upon the EB uh, 110, the 1994 EB 110 that yep. we have one of the five of those special uh, EB 110s that uh, were the SS model. We mm-hmm. I just did a YouTube video on that one that will be coming out soon for the YouTube channel. And actually, we had our car up at the uh, up at Pebble Beach when they displayed for the first time the Cento Dici. Yes. So they had our car. EB110 and the new 110 there. So that would be the car I would like to be because it's got all the power and customization and the aerodynamics and the engineering, but yet it's still comfortable and you can you can drive it just like you're driving around town in my, well, even it's more comfortable than my, my 66 Corvette, I'll tell you that. Yes, so. now I know the car you're talking about now and I saw that car live. When I, now, was that also at the Quail? Did they have that at the Quail or was it just at Pebble? It's the white car, right? It's a white car. It was a, It was displayed at the Quail yep. and then we moved it over to Pebble and uh, the Bugatti company likes to have some of our older Bugattis. Like last year we were there where they had the Diva or less than that. No, they had the uh, the 300 plus car there. And then they, we had our, our 1935 or 1925 Type 35C race car there along yep. with it. So I'm yep. showing that one. And and that's uh, actually uh, when I was there two years ago uh, when they were showing the Devo, I did a favor for the director of marketing for Bugatti. And he said, you know, if you're ever in Mulsheim, you know, we'd love to take you on a tour of the Atelier. And if you know, they call the assembly factory there in Mulsheim the Atelier. That means studio. Yep. So I said, because uh, Diane and I are going over to Europe for five weeks and we're going to be in Strasbourg. And he says, ah, well, that's only, you know, 15 kilometers away from Molsheim. So he arranged a private tour of the Atelier for us. So 
We went to the, uh, you know, the chateau there that was original called Chateau Saint-Jean. And we went there, met the quote-unquote salesperson, you know, and we had croissants and cappuccino. And then he took us on a tour of the whole facility. And then he took us over to the atelier uh, where we got to see the cars being assembled and meet the people who actually are assembling them and see how they're all put together. And uh, the thing I did miss after the, they first come out, the new car is done. Uh, they have a test driver that takes it down about 45 kilometers south to Comar, and they run it around the Comar, the Comar uh, airport for about 500 miles and test it all out. And I would have loved to take one of those cars down the Audubon to go down to uh, <laughs> to Comar. Yeah. Wow. They took us into the uh, to the sales area, and they have a a TV screen probably 75 inches wide, and you sit down and you design your own. Bugatti from the ground up. So for four and a half hours, we sat there, Diane and I sat there, starting with the chassis and, and where you want the carbon fiber, what kind of pattern on the carbon fiber, everything down to the stitching. We designed our own car from the ground up, much like a bespoke car that you would do back in the 20s and wow. 30s. What an experience. Oh my gosh. Too much fun you're having, Rick. That's for sure. <laughs> That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Well, we are entering what I call the last lap. I'm going to fire off some questions, get some very quick blips of the throttle answers, kind of a lightning round here. So here we go. What's one of your personal habits you believe has contributed to your many successes? Don't let people tell you you can't do something. I love it. That's awesome. How about if I could arrange for you to have a drink or a meal with anyone in the automotive industry, living or deceased? Who would it be? Well, I thought a lot about that, too. Uh, but it has to be a Tory Bugatti. I mean, he was an artist first, but he also had a, a really, he didn't take, he didn't go along much with people with bad manners and weren't intelligent. You know, I mean, he refused to sell a Bugatti Royale to the king of Albania because he says the guy has terrible table manners. I'd never want him driving one of my cars. That's hilarious. He, even had trouble selling the cars. You know, they only they built six and sold two, and both those two came back a year later because they couldn't afford them. I mean, those cars cost, uh, what, $7,800,000 in, in today's money uh, right. when they were made. And so he didn't put up with it. If he didn't, if he didn't like the car, he'd just say, give it back to me. I'll buy it back to me. I, you know, if you don't uh, treat it right, you're not going to uh, use it. So I would love to see that. You're not going to have one of my cars. Well, when it comes to automotive advice, what's the best advice someone else has ever offered you? Well, I would say remember to clean the battery post. <laughs> Simple little thing, isn't it? But it makes a world of difference sometimes on an old car. That's for sure. If there's a story that goes with it, if you want the story. Okay, sure. When I was in college, I was making money on the side working on people's cars, okay? And a guy had a problem, his car wouldn't start. And I was more of a parts changer than a mechanic. So we kept going to this mom and pop auto parts store out there in Kansas City. And uh, uh, we'd go and say, hey, I need a solenoid, you know, I need a starter motor. Oh, I got a new battery cable, whatever it was. And every time that we would go in, the woman, the, the mom of this mom and pop store would say, now don't forget, boys, to clean the battery post. You know, you may not have good connection on the battery post. And then, well, you know, 17 parts later, I finally say, well, let's see if we're cleaning the battery post works because nothing else is working. Fired right up. <laughs> Sometimes it's the simplest of things. Now, when it comes to yeah. resources, I'm kind of guessing the answer to this question would be the Mullen Automotive Museum, right? Well, of course, you know, we have a great library and an archivist and we have 
great collection of, uh, of other materials that, that luckily I get access to, which is really nice. But obviously, when you come into the Mullen Automotive Museum, we want you to feel like you're going back to the Grand Salon d'Automobile in Paris from the 20s and 30s. In fact, Mr. Mullen, when he bought that facility from uh, Otis Chandler, he pretty much gutted it, and he's tried to recreate what it looked like inside the Grand Salon d'Automobile uh, in Paris, which was the grandest you know, car show in, in the world at the time. So there's so many pieces of rolling art. Plus, we have all this work by uh, bronze sculpture by... Uh, Rembrandt Bugatti and all its furniture and jewelry and all these other things that uh, Atari's father created, uh, Carlo Bugatti. And we have, I think, one of the largest collections of Lalique mascots. Uh, yeah. We actually a Citroën that has uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, five horses as a hood ornament. It's the only car that has a hood ornament designed specifically by Lalique for that car, wow. as it was a five CV. And so it's got the 5CV uh, horse mascot on it. Mm -hmm. So we have all that. And, you know, it's just, it's beautiful. The the docents tell you great stories about the car. And we have this car that spent 77 years in the bottom of Lake Majori. Great story in and of itself. A uh, car was owned by Rene Dreyfus, actually. So, and we, uh, you know, I like get to drive these cars. I got, uh, not too long ago, get to drive the million franc car, the car that won the million franc with Rene Dreyfus driving it. And we call it the car that beat Hitler. Oh, that's the car that was uh, featured in the book Faster by Neil Boscom, right? That's exactly it. And I had that car at the Quail probably six years ago. And uh, we were, I was supposed to go pick it up because Mr. Mullen was racing it at the uh, Laguna Seca. And I was supposed to pick it up and drive it over to the Quail. And I don't know if you know the Quail. There's two ways to get there. One is like on the freeway. The other is a sort of like curvy mountain road. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know which way going. But I got a phone call when I was on the way over to Laguna Seca and uh, Peter said, hey, listen, my niece wants to go for a ride in the car, so I'm going to drive it over. Oh. I was totally irritated that I didn't get to drive the car. Yeah. So anyway, Friday night after we show it and we win best in class uh, at the at the quail, uh, Peter calls me and says, listen, I need you. I know Saturday's supposed to be your day off before we go to the Pebble on Sunday, but would you please please do me a favor? I got a bunch of reporters that want to go for a ride on the Million Frank car. Would you mind mm -hmm. spending all day Saturday driving reporters around the Million Frank car around Monterey Peninsula? Yeah. I said, okay, all right. So Time I just got to go back to and get gas, or, you know, it runs on, we only run on racing fuel. So anyway, you can see some of that with uh, the LA Times and the Rob Report, that kind of stuff. Oh, so yeah. it was fun. Yeah, no kidding. Now, how about a book? Is there a book you might refer our listeners to that you enjoyed? Well, if you're interested in Bugatti, obviously, and I am, there's two things I'd recommend. Just recently, in, well, 2018, the American Bugatti Registry and Data Book just came out. It's by Sandy Lith and Keith uh, Jansen. It is a book that has one page devoted to every Bugatti in the United States. And it has all the production information, and it has a picture of the cars, the historical pictures, and a picture of it new. Now, when you turn to the index, you can see under Peter Mullen, they have them listed by owners. You know, he's got 50 listings under his name right. for all his cars. Yeah. But that's one. The other one I would highly recommend for anyone at all interested in Bugatti is a book called From Milan to Molsheim. And it's basically the story and history of every Bugatti that was ever made because Carlo, Tori's father, was, in, was an architect, designer, 
in Milan. And he moved the whole family to Paris, and then uh, eventually uh, Tori started his own business in Molsheim. But it's kind of a pricey book. I saw it just recently on Amazon for $895. So it's, yeah. this would warn you. I think you can find it if you look carefully. You can find it, you know, uh, as a uh, PDF. I know that's how I have it. So, yeah. anyway, that's what two books I'd recommend. Absolutely, great books. I'll make sure I put those on Rick Eberst E B E R S T show notes page, so you can access those and find them. I'll make it real easy for you. All right, we're up to the checkered flag here. I'm going to buy you a collector car today. Any car in the world that you would like to have, I'm going to park it in your garage. My listeners know there's some rules to this game, though. You can't sell it. You got to keep it. You got to drive it. But the kicker is it's the only one collector car you can have. So what's going to be parked in Rick Eber's garage today? Well, I have to follow my trend, and I have to go with the 2020 Bugatti Chiron Super Sport 300+. plus. Oh, geez. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now, I just tell the Gotti I design, that Diane and I designed when we were there, it was a very own, and we, uh, it cost $10 million. Ouch. Okay, that was the cost. All right, so I got a, I got a disc, I think. Oh. Right. But this car can go from zero to 300, back to zero, and back up to 200 in the same time it takes the McLaren F1 just to go from zero to 200. <laughs> Well, gee, age has not slowed you down, has it? Well, no. I mean, I, I was in drag racing, but uh, <laughs> I, one of the cars I owned I really loved was a Lotus Super 7A and uh, it was a Osworth Ford four-cylinder engine and Judson Supercharger on. But that car could weave in and out of the stripe lines down the middle of the road at 45 miles an hour. So I learned a lot more about car handling and just not going fast in a straight line. Yeah. But uh, th- that car would be really great. All I ask, if you're going to give me this car, yeah. is you also pay for my insurance, <laughs> the new tire, and the fuel, okay? Yeah, you're because you're going to be burning through fuel like crazy in this thing. <laughs> I have a friend with a Baron here in L.A., and he says, you know, uh, when he's down to a half a tank of gas, he's got there's only one place in town that sells the high-performance uh, gasoline. And he says, it takes me a half a tank to drive over there oh, and back. Oh, jeez. So yeah. <laughs> And I drive over there, but come back. I still only have a half a thing of gas. Oh, my gosh. Well, that is a challenge with these supercars. Well, I would expect nothing less from you, Rick, Uh, something crazy like that. Okay, I'll get to work. Uh, You have a color choice, so I make sure I get the right one for you. Well, I'm a Corvette guy, so it's got to be red. Red. All right. Well, we'll see what we can do. I'm sure they'll do anything with a big enough checkbook. Rick, you've taken me on a great ride today. This has been fun. I want to thank you for sharing your journey. Before I let you go, is there a little piece of wisdom or guidance you might offer our listeners before you rip off into the sunset in that Bugatti Chiron Super Sport Plus in red? Well, I think one of the things I've learned in my life is to take what I'll call cautious risk. One thing I learned is that, you know, I used to pay people to do things, whether it's around the house or in the car or whatever. And it's like, no, let me see if I can do this first. And by trying it first, uh, I usually need some new tools, so I get to buy new tools, and I could do it. And if I need help, then if I have trouble, I'll always ask for help ahead of time to kind of get some ideas. But if I need to pay someone else to do it, then I do. But I've not learned anything if I just go write a check. So I try to, like, the first time I pulled the transmission out of the Corvette, it's a M22 Rock Crusher, so it's worth quite a lot of money. But I said, I'm not going to let anybody else pull this out except me. Now, I'm going to take it to an expert to have it rebuilt 
because I don't, transmissions are like French for leave your hands off of it, you know? And so I don't do transmissions, but I did pull it out and put it back in with a new clutch plate and all that. And, but uh, I would rather break something doing it myself and then kind of ask for help later if I'm having a problem. But that doesn't mean I don't ask for information or talk to people before I do it. And then when I'm done, I fix it. And I usually got a new tool. There you go. Take cautious risk. What's the best way for people to keep up with you, my friend? Well, you can try a number of things. You can go just to, if you go to the Mullen Automotive Museum YouTube channel, you can see all these uh, videos that we've made. And, you know, the first one we did was uh, Hispana Suiza 1911. Then we just did the 1935 Wasan that just uh, won Best in Show at Pebble Beach in 2011. Uh, we did a 1929 Bugatti Type 4344A. We actually did it. The only car in our museum that's not a French car is a 1938 Tatra. And we also did 1994 EB110. And those are kind of our in-depth ones. They go on for about 20 minutes. And then we have a lot of Instagram ones that are just kind of like under the hood. But we open the hood and show you the engine inside the car. And, yeah, they're only about 10 minutes long. But they're really great to get to see behind the scenes and uh and I get to sit in all the cars and uh, point out the dash and how things work. There you go. I'll make sure I put links to all these on Rick's show notes page. Just go to carsyad.com, type in Rick Eberst. Again, it's E-B-E-R-S-T. And you'll find everything right there to enjoy. And if you find yourselves in Los Angeles area, get up to Oxnard, uh, go to the Mullen Automotive Museum. It is well worth the journey. Rick, thanks for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for sharing your experiences with the listeners and with me. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure, Mark. You're welcome. If you're listening to Cars Yeah, you've probably spent some time working on your favorite ride. But how confident are you working on your finances? You may be able to rebuild a fuel injection system, but can you decipher the details of a mutual fund? If you're like me, investments, insurance, annuities, budgeting, and other financial concepts may seem a bit daunting. But what if I told you there's a book that describes these subjects and more in an easy-to-read and a very humorous way? My friend Chris Kimball, CFP, a longtime sponsor and past guest here on Cars yeah, has written that book, and it's titled The Saga of Ike and Penny, a couple's humorous journey through the confusing world of finance. It's a fun look at things you need to know, everything from investing to effective ways to get rid of credit card debt, and it's probably the only book on finance with a VMAX on the front cover and a classic Mini Cooper on the back. The book's available at Amazon for just $10, and this book will dramatically improve the direction of your financial future. I gave copies to each of my children. All securities are through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Christopher Kimball Financial Services is not affiliated with Money Concepts Capital Corp. Get your copy, The Saga of Ike and Penny, today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah! Yeah!